Well, good afternoon, everybody. It's uh, another conversation with Agility by Nature and me and me, Ian Gill. Today, it's the first week of February. I think I blinked and I missed January. What happened there? As you know, on the podcast, we like to bring a wide range of uh, interesting talkers and we like to delve into the world of digital, the world of change, development, project management, communication, strategy. And at the heart of it is technology. It all seems to me the developers get a lot of the glory, don't they? They're the change. They're like the RAF of the agile and technical world. But deep down, there's an engine that has to keep running. And I think we misunderstand quite how much work goes into good old-fashioned operations and infrastructure. The world of keeping the lights on, you might crudely say. Something interesting happened yesterday. Mr Bezos has stepped down or maybe stepped across from his control of Amazon. And the reporter said, many of you will know the new replace won't know the new replacement because you'll be familiar with Amazon as a retailer. But in fact, they do quite a lot of infrastructure stuff. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's exactly what I know from. It shows you how invisible infrastructure can be. To share some insights with us today, I've got a global infrastructure professional. He's been there for many, many years, keeping the lights on, being invisible until the infamous emergency restoration of service is called for. Today's guest is Paul Stafford. Hi, Paul. How are you? Yeah, good. Good afternoon. Sorry, that was quite a long introduction. I, I, I know. I, I, I was uh, quite pleased, actually. You said quite a lot of things, and uh, uh, you finished it with professional, so I smiled at that point. <laughs> <laughs> All of our guests are professional. <laughs> Except me. I'm, I'm the unprofessional. I, you know, If I look bad, it makes you look a lot better. I, I mean, you, you have been in that infamous infrastructure world for, I would say, nearly 30 years. I think you started as a technical uh, support manager, which sounds brutally hard. Um, you had a good stint at Wellcome Trust as well. Mm. And more recently, you've coming to the end of a term at Duco, where you've been head of infrastructure, which is a global role as well. Um, we talk about time going infrastructure tries to be invisible but my goodness gracious what has changed in the infrastructure of the operations world over the last 30 years how do you keep on top of all of that it's it's quite interesting i think if you're in the middle of it you don't necessarily see the change because it just happens day in day out um i suppose it's almost like living with somebody and seeing them every day you don't realize how much that person necessarily changes to somebody that hasn't seen them for a while um, but just to give you an idea of how much things have changed, uh, I used to work for Marconi and they had debt faxes and they showed me into the computer room and it was absolutely enormous with these big cabinets yeah. side by side by side. And you'd literally walk from one end of the cabinet to the other. And this thing must have been about eight metres long. Yeah. And I said, oh, wow, that's fantastic. Yes, that was one of them. Yes. That was just one server, and they had several of these. So things do move very, very quickly in IT. Absolutely. I, I do miss that. I mean, it was the always the obligatory tool, please come and see our site. Uh, yeah. and you, you had to know how many source power sources they had from different uh, power suppliers. But I was always impressed with, look at these cages, how neat and tidy the cables were. That seemed to be the epitome of, of uh, good infrastructure management, tidy cables. It's, it's a thing. It really is a thing. And 
uh, I was very lucky at Welcome, actually. I had a, a really, really good, fastidious networking person. And one of the things he did was label everything and make sure the cables were neat and tidy. Uh, but I think we learned our lesson there because a lot of these servers will slide out on rails in the cabinets. And sure. if the cabling's not good, as you slide it out, everything pops out the back of it. And obviously that system goes offline. So it is important, but yeah. you're right. You need somebody who's slightly uh, OCD with cabling. Absolutely. Talk to me about, I mean, you know, the developer mindset and the tester mindset is often discussed and you need the testers. They have a different view of the world. I don't often think about operation people and infrastructure people. What do you, how would you talk about their mindset as a, in the great IT pantheon? Yeah, that's a really, really good idea, actually, um, to discuss that. Um, you're right. I, I don't think it probably is discussed enough, but a lot of these people are um, very, very nurturing over the systems they look after yeah. and you find there's a lot of care and attention um i found quite early on that um if you actually give people quite a lot of space in their career you usually get a, a really really good uh person working for you and you find what they deliver um you know, works very very well and in fact at uh, welcome uh, i had two of uh, my uh, employees actually ask if they could work from home work remotely and at the time i mean we are going back uh, a few years now and uh, i'm probably going to say about 25 years so remote working was not necessarily that common um but they put in the hours they really did and that's one of the things that i i learned and you forget if you are going to make changes to the infrastructure you can't necessarily do that in hours quite a lot of this does require time down at a weekend or of an evening to actually make these changes. Uh, as technology has moved on, obviously you have multiple sites, you can fail over to the secondary site, but these people are still working. These people are still doing the hours at the weekends and the evenings uh, to make the changes, to physically open these servers and machines and replace memory cards or failed components, or even strip them out of the cabinet and replace them, which sounds a very, very quick thing to do. but it does take quite a lot of time to actually change equipment, physical equipment, in and out of the uh, the racks in the server room. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think in, in the good old days, let's go roughly 80s, 90s, maybe the early 2000s, but change and big change and small change was hard work. It had to be planned as oh, services became so. on all the time developers had to think about well how are we going to shove these great big code releases through operations would be saying yeah well, we can give you half an hour friday evening between you know 11 and 12 <laughs> somewhere around there at the coordinate because the service is always on and we didn't have the tools really to to to, to do it invisibly it had to shut down the service there was a big communication with use and this is where so many war stories of IT come from that era of oh I know yes police you know it, I, I think we had the horror stories as well I uh, won't name the company but they were doing an electrical test and uh, they had to shut down uh, the power obviously shut down all the uh, the services in the building so it lifts everything and it was to allow them to um, switch from one supplier that came into the building to the other and it was a great big switch but to play safe um they wanted everything shut down um and everything was due to be kicked off at nine o'clock so people got that half past eight and uh, started work 
um, and then somebody switched off the power. So all of these systems just crashed and they they were ready to go slightly earlier than we were and they went for it. Yeah. So the recovery afterwards, it takes time. It takes time for these little systems to find their feet again uh, after they've uh, they've crashed. And you learn, you learn very, very quickly. And do you think that sort of reinforces, to put it crudely, a slightly more defensive attitude to the system from development, from change, from customer design, you know, keep the machine polished, keep it working, you know, there's only so much risk the customer really will take. Let's put it this way, as soon as my Wi-Fi dips down, you know, whatever, all the people are ringing me up in the family saying, what's happened, what's happened, it's not working, you know, <laughs> they expect it to be seamless and not. So users are very much it's always on and then they say let's change something then it's the balance yeah absolutely i mean one of the things that i think the um the infrastructure team does is very early on try and secure some very very regular maintenance windows um and like i say a lot of the time these are out of hours so these are the evenings the weekend jobs where you can then run the maintenance or make the changes that you need to do um, and it's good to actually have that open discussion with the business uh, because you do reach the point where they will want change as you say and that means a period without the service or oh, it did I, I'm gonna say I think things have changed a little bit uh, as we we're creeping more to today and with that um, you then get your period that you are allowed some grace to actually make uh, some of those bigger changes that you need to do with the physical equipment. And it, it reminds me, actually, I was smiling away because um, we used a, a technology called Never Fail, which allows you to keep two systems, two servers in sync. And um, if one crashes for whatever reason, or one is turned off, uh, the other one can carry on. It's actually a very, very quick way to uh, have continuity. Um, and the only reason we got that in place is because we're using another system before that. And one of the servers did uh, crash, bless it. And it took us almost four hours to recover this system. So I, I was always joking with my boss, the best way to actually get investment in technology is to have that major failure. And then they actually begin to look at how you can actually get the RTO, the uh, recovery times down uh, very, very rapidly with some investment. You wouldn't suggest, Paul, that some IT manager may have deliberately provoked a failure to make the business. I, 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 of course, I would never suggest that. Ever. Like that for sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but you, you, you do make a good case. And, and actually, um, I do wonder about, so in the, in the past, there was a lot of negotiation over time scales and calendars and days and planning and that. But the world has come on and, and you know, we have the cloud, we have continuous deployment, we have CICD pipelines. How has that really affected the way you manage your teams, the mindset that you, that, that landscape, and in some places you're now in charge of the change because you're yes. making changes to the infra and the developers are saying, well, where the hell did that come from? <laughs> <laughs> it's actually quite a good shift. And I think if you've got a company that's always had servers on site, you are going to have that discussion at some point where they will probably step into it by having a hybrid environment where some of the services, and it's usually the newer ones that come online, will yeah. naturally step and live in the cloud. And once they then concede the 
um, uh, the safety, the security, the stability of what is offered in the cloud, um, you're then migrating those other services across. Uh, it's a big shift. It's a big shift for any company that um, maybe started with everything in server rooms, having a DR center, having um, a lot of the uh, people looking after the uh, physical, uh, physical equipment in the computer rooms. And then you're shifting to somebody else doing that. Yeah. And it takes a lot of time. It takes a little bit of faith in technology to actually make that shift and transition. And the great thing about the cloud is it can exist anywhere. And if you are dealing with a global company, uh, so for example, um, you may have offices outside of the UK, yeah. um, you can actually then move within the cloud. And, uh, it doesn't really matter which one you pick, you know, um, some of the, uh, the big boys you've got, you know, AWS and you've got Azure and Google out there. Um, and they have sites in different regions. So if you have an office in Singapore that are using one service, why not put that in a cloud offering that's local to them? Yeah. And then you've got that little region within your cloud that is absolutely close to that office. And they're going to get very, very good um, uh, service, very, very good response times. And um, you're finding then that as older companies are creeping into that, uh, somebody said in the enlightened world, but uh, the modern world of cloud computing, um, you're then being able to extend what you were able to do as a physical space uh, because it costs a lot of money to own a building, to put a server in, in a building um, or rent one from another company. Um, whereas the cloud, you can step into it quite gently and slowly at um, not much cost. And when you actually do a total cost of ownership, and I think that really has won a lot of companies over, um, you're then seeing that you need less staff to actually physically look after this equipment and they can then be involved in looking after the applications and improving those that yeah. the people use. Um, and it, I think it works out very, very well. But it, I, I was saying earlier on, it is horses for courses. You have to have the right system because not everything naturally just sits in cloud yeah. and you have to make sure that you're doing it for the right reasons. Exactly. Uh, it's interesting talking about the cost. Um, I mean, the big money in IT tends to sit in infrastructure, in my experience, in the boxes and wires in the good old days, and removing costs from your business to be more competitive. For some reason, everyone said, well, let's just move developers out of the country and make it cheaper. But the real cost was really in the tin and iron, wasn't it? Was that yeah. the killer argument? Because I don't think that in the early days of cloud, everyone said, oh, yeah, absolutely. Give me 16 of them. And there was a while of quite a lot of resistance at the C-suite, the, the, the senior management yeah. level, to the cloud. Was it the money argument that, that sort of brought them to? No, I don't think it was. I think it was a, a lack of understanding of what the cloud was initially. Um, it's it's a very difficult concept to describe to somebody that may not be that technical. And if you're then saying, I'm going to take your crown jewels, yeah. all of your uh, information and give it to somebody else to look after. Yeah, that's that's not an easy conversation to have yeah. with somebody. And they do actually want to look at that and actually have those conversations to see 
why? Why would you do that? Um, So it is quite an interesting conversation to be had. But I think the money came second. I think the initial conversation was actually over the security of all of this. Exactly. Okay. That's really interesting. And particularly when you're dealing with data, people's data, and that's sloshing around, well, goodness knows where. Um, We went through all the safe harbour discussions. And I don't think that issue is really the, the... the safety of the data and the possession of the data has gone away, has it? Uh, No, no. And sometimes you have to keep things in a region. So, uh, for example, uh, and it does depend what you're doing and who your customers are, but that data has to sit in the EU or it has to sit in a particular region within the cloud service as well. And you can do this. Of course you can do this. You can fix your data to sit in a particular region. Uh, but again, not everybody realizes this. And especially at some of the different levels, you're uh, explaining that, yes, there's lots of different data centers owned by AWS, for example, over the world. And you can see the beads of sweat beginning as they imagine that their data is then being taken outside of the uh, UK, outside of the EU, and then being spread over the entire globe. Um, And it's just having those sensible conversations and making sure you know what the remit is for them to feel comfortable and then making sure you comply with that and i think the cost argument comes second to that um and there is an absolute cost saving once you actually look out at how much it costs to cable power cool yeah a server room and they still need it this is the great things although um one of the trends i did see was the temperature of uh, computer rooms increase. So I do remember the days when you'd go in, you'd need quite a thick winter jacket just to get inside the computer room. And they're, they're almost running now at a comfortable office temperature. Uh, yeah. They're no longer uh, that cold. And yeah, absolutely. I, I We did quite a big study uh, whilst I was at Welcome. And I think that the optimum temperature that I managed to get the computer rooms balanced that was around 20 degrees and it's balancing the humidity it's balancing the yeah. cooling yeah. and it's balancing the the cost of actually running uh, the aircon servers will run at, at quite a high temperature they're quite happy to run at you know 20 21 degrees so i remember the days well uh, when many moons ago uh, the server room I didn't go in there for a number of good reasons. One, there was no reason for me to be in there, actually. Uh, 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 and second of all, it had halon gas as protection from fire, which apparently is pretty pretty bad for your health if you get caught with that. So I thought that's another good reason to get there. I don't think they use halon gas anymore. But I remember... No, I, don't. <laughs> I don't know what they use now. I mean, you can really show my age. You, you've got me You've got me probably pinned to the decade now. But I remember <laughs> um, early days, I think it was in the FT, um, the Oracle database kept crashing, and uh, I said, "What is the problem today? What DBL? What is the problem?" She says, "I'll tell you the problem. Get your coat." And she got in a taxi. She put me in the taxi, took me to our outsource, you know, host who's got them. Got in. We walked across planks, wooden planks, because there's holes in the in the floor, to the server where the Oracle database was. And she put her hand on it, and I put my hand. It was hot, 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 fifty-one degrees. <laughs> oh wow! Yes, <laughs> she said, "No wonder he isn't." working 
He was quite Greek and quite bold and fantastic. It was the best explanation I've ever had about why Oracle database wasn't working. Um, <laughs> the the other thing, of course, infrastructure operations they have returned to service. They have security issues, and they very often get to hold the DR and business continuity planning plan. I was just wondering now. How many companies, how many infrastructure managers have been caught napping because of COVID? Oh, well, that was a loaded question. I think loads yeah, responded I, I, brilliantly. brilliantly. <laughs> I was actually talking to a friend of mine who said that um, uh, he knew of a company that had undergone a, a legal water in their data center over um, uh, this year. And they, failed over as you would do to your DR center and not everything was up and running. And this is something that you learn very quickly. If you're going to do a DR test, you need to make sure that those systems can run um, from the other data center. And back in the day, of course, you'd have a period of time. So um, you'd pick a weekend, you'd fail over everything to your DR center, your, your yeah. secondary site, yeah. and then you carry on working and make sure that everything was off in the primary site. And where you could very quickly tell the things that break, the things that just do not work, and then you spend time fixing them. Uh, but you're absolutely right, it's the test. You need to actually run that test. And there's several components that, if you're talking about physical data centers, uh, you need to bear in mind. One, that your data is copied over Yep. to the secondary site, yeah. uh, two, that enough bandwidth that they can handle all the staff connected to it, yeah. and three, that all the applications that you care about are there. And the last thing you need to uh, also think about is how long it's going to take to recover something, yeah. because um, it's, it's quite interesting. I was looking at this for a previous company, and I said, um, what's the most important thing you need to recover in the event of a DR. And I was expecting either the mean business system or the finance system. And they said, no, no, it's HR. We need HR up and running rapidly. Uh, because if it's been um, uh, a real disaster, we may need to account for everybody. We may need to contact yeah. people. And therefore, you absolutely have to make sure that the HR system is up and running first. And it's not the answer I was expecting at the time. Yeah. but Absolutely, it was critical. You can see that very, very rapidly afterwards. And the other thing they did, which I also thought was actually very, very good, they gave all the key managers company credit cards. And it's not to have fun with, um, but it was um, to make sure that staff could buy things in the event of um, being displaced for whatever reason. And I think if you're in a city, you do have to consider that if you can't travel to the city, a lot of people may have things in the office they need and they have a lot of things that they need to work. And I suppose that kind of creeps on slightly to um, where we are today, because, you know, a few years later and uh, nobody would expect it, uh, those pandemic plans that companies had written to actually then come into force. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things that uh, almost every company that I've worked for um, has done is make sure that the staff work from home if nothing more than to test their systems right. and um, it, for some companies it's been incredibly easy for them to creep across 
into home working. Yeah, yeah. But others, it, it's had been an absolute trial, and you have to feel for them because it has turned everything upside down. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think it is interesting because I, I do know a lot of companies have the plan, but yes. really tested the plan. So classically, I think you know you do a dead man test, isn't it? Yeah, every third person is saying, "Sorry, go home." don't answer the phone, et cetera, et cetera, which is quite sophisticated. I'm presuming it's, it's an expensive test as well. Yeah. Uh, and that's, so now a lot of people have really tested their, their ability to communicate and, and respond very, very quickly. And you might not necessarily be able to get into your own server room. I think that happened to a company. Yeah. There was a fire and you weren't allowed in the building. They just put yes. that was it. The, the brigade quite rightly said, "There's a ton of smoke coming out. We don't know if it's poisonous. We don't know where the fire is. You ain't going in the building." And we were going, "But, but," and they said, "No, but, but. We're in charge. You're not going in the building." Yes, and I've been involved in those types of bizarre incidents. It's it's quite ironic. They were running through a fire drill, so everybody left the building quite happily. And uh, you met up and they did a quick uh, tally of head counts and then how long it took for people to exit the building. And then you pile back in again. So the joy is that all the lifts are then grounded. So you end up uh, stomping up the stairs to your floor, which is always good fun. For the fire alarm to ring again and people are looking at each other and thinking, well, that's a little unexpected. Whoever's controlling this test obviously hasn't got quite a grip on the uh, uh, the fire alarm. Um, for an announcement to come out that, no, this time it's been activated. It's um, a real evacuation. And we found out afterwards that it was a steam pipe that had uh, come loose from the boiler, had actually activated the heat alarm. And you're absolutely right. Until the fire brigade determined that, yes, it's safe that you can re-enter, you're outside and you are displaced and uh, people uh, are going home because they know that this is going to take not um, minutes to sort out. This is going to take hours to make yeah. sure the building is safe again for people. And yeah, it, it is fun, but these things do happen. Very stressful. I mean, you know, if you're a time driven business a media, classically newspapers in the good old days went out at a particular mm. time. And if you miss that mark, Ain't no newspaper. So that, that that cranks up. It's amazing how very small parochial things can really ruin your day. It's like the classic one. And I have actually heard this and I have seen it. You know, the, the cleaner who unplugged something to plug their hoover. Mm. And it just took out 15 servers. Just like that. I'm, I'm pretty sure that doesn't happen so much today, does it? No, I've, I've not heard of that. But I, I think you all hear the horror stories. My favourite one was a, a computer room that was designed and it had a little flap and underneath the flap was a button and if you press the button it cut all the power in the server room mm -hmm. and just above the flap was a button to exit the door <laughs> and you can imagine the accidents <laughs> that had gone off in that computer room and it was purely a, a minor design fault that they had to rectify because obviously people innocently um try to leave the computer room we're just cutting the power yeah. um but you're right you just don't hear these wonderful stories um as often and i'm quite sure that they probably happen um but as, as we're creeping over to cloud uh, of course those stories are probably reserved for the uh, aws google you know microsoft azure world uh, internally where they're having those disasters but as a, a user we don't see it uh, a yeah. lot of that is invisible yeah it's 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 interesting. So 
if we think about now the modern operations, the modern infrastructure person, where to a degree, I suppose, server power and availability is almost, is it commoditized now? And again, it's, it's back to the uh, horses for courses. It depends what your business model is, but it is uh, going that route completely. Um, if you're, uh, especially if you're doing a cost analysis, uh, the first thing you do is plug in how much uh, memory, computes, yeah. storage this thing is going to need. Yeah. And uh, you get a cost out straight away. And that cost is um, broken down to what you want it by hour, by week, month. Uh, year even and then it's going straight into uh, your OPEX budget whereas before you didn't necessarily consider that because you'd spec the server for that and then um, that was a, a capital cost where you'd buy that and not think about it again and obviously you'd have uh, a little bit of growth built into the uh, the purchase um, and it's, it's a very different world but I think that companies now do want uh, the breakdown of how much things cost. And as I say, I, I completely accept it depends on your market. But if you have customers hosted on your servers and you're processing their data, it's great to actually understand how much they're using, how much they're costing you yeah. to actually use your systems. Yeah. And then, of course, you want to make sure that you have costed that back to them. You don't want to get caught into a situation where uh, they're paying you less than you're paying for your system to actually host uh, their processing. And, and there's a sort of new art now of because we talk about the cloud and it's cheaper, it can get very expensive. That on-tap computing power, you know, developers creating new and new environments, you run a process, you didn't quite realize how much it was clicking away. Uh, let's run this script, all of it. And there's a few stories recently when someone got the 600, it was just an independent developer who got a $630,000 bill because some script was running across the, across the Googleplex. Um, so there's a new art now of balancing those costs, making sure that you know things are spun up, they're spun down, they're essential, and actually let's let's sell spare capacity here. There, it's almost becoming a marketplace, isn't it? It it's an absolute art, but I think you've already mentioned the magic word, which is to spin it down. So yes, you don't mind it growing to actually do something to process something, but as soon as it's done that. You want to make sure it's absolutely either off or at its bare minimum so that it isn't costing you things. And that has been the real change in the way that computers used these days. If it's in the server room, it's always up, it's always running, and you don't give it a second thought. If it's in the cloud, you're right, you are charged for the moment that that thing is on. Yeah. And then it's a very, very different model. And it's making things slightly more complicated but it is a different world and you need to make sure that your processes your applications and your features are configured for that world yeah. and they work in it because you are right you do not want to end up with a a large bill at the end of the month for something that was just chugging away quite happily yeah Every time I hear the word click model I think uh -uh, there'd be dragons there. yes so Thinking again, so coming back to the people and change. So now I think the world is different insofar as cross-functional teams is becoming more common. Mm. We are we haven't got quite the them and us developers at one end of the building and infra at the other end. 
there are continuous deployment, not just continuous integration, deployment mm -hmm. actually going live, being handled by pipelines, being managed collaboratively, one hopes. Do you see that is really the way forward now for infrastructure and oh, yeah. development is just a blur thing now. And it's really, what is the objective and how do we do that effectively and efficiently? I, I honestly feel it's brought a lot of people, a lot of teams much closer. Yeah. And they're having um, really interesting conversations about what they can do, what they want and what they need to achieve. And you're absolutely right, it's, it's having those discussions and there is a solution and i think that uh, the balance is the cost yeah. of that solution uh, always um uh, i'll definitely take my hat off to all of the finance people out there that uh, are trying to control any it team because uh, you're absolutely right you can spend a small fortune um but it has actually brought those teams closer. They're having really, really good, interesting, sensible conversations. Um, and you talk about um, uh, continuous change within that, that world. Um, and I think it's being able to just jump back in time so easily, so quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that if something does go wrong, and things do go wrong, and you should still expect things to go wrong, um, because you learn absolutely the most when things are not going well. and my golly, you, you actually really do improve them for the second time you're, you're putting that, <laughs> that upgrade out there. Um, but again, you're learning a lot and these things are changing all the time, but they're changing during the day. And this is the most amazing thing um, where you can have a, a system that's up and running and suddenly it's already been upgraded or a new functionality is available in the system. Yeah. And it's, it's happening as you're a real-time user of that system, which is fantastic. And, and the tooling available now, some amazing stuff in the market that you can use, which you could only dreamt of in the good Yes, and, and it takes a lot of the pressure or the stress away from you yeah. back in the day trying to find a solution. Yeah. Um, I think there is so much out there that you'll type in a keyword or you'll type in a search and whereas you were then uh, modifying that to try and find a company that offered a system or a piece of software or a plugin or an API that you needed yeah, yeah. and now you're filtering out loads of offerings uh, loads of actual um, uh, pieces of software that will solve this for you and and you're trying to find the best fit for your company yeah. uh, but Again, that, that's fantastic. It's great to see that change in the marketplace uh, for the people that are actually then being able to plug in that piece of software. And a lot of the time you can try them out as well. So uh, you're not having to uh, install these uh, software packages and then decide that, oh no, you've made the wrong choice. You've purchased the wrong item. Uh, you can very, very quickly try them, see if they work, see if they scale, and then make the purchase afterwards try and buy is a really really good thing i, I, I love it I, I, and and, and you, so now thinking about if you're building a team and hiring a team of um infrastructure and operational people sort of i, I talked to someone said you know what do you look for when you hire developers and they sort of said curiosity and problem solving skills top of the list they weren't really so worried about whether they had a degree you know they expected that degree but what do you look for now in today's ops people 
I, it's a really, really uh, tough question to answer. Yeah. And um, it's, uh, no, no, don't be sorry. It's uh, something I, I've been through quite, uh, quite recently. It's lots and lots of differences uh in in the team that you're building up and uh i know i've said to you before um i, I really now have learned a lot from the people that are slightly quieter than the others uh, because they usually the real thinkers the ones that have uh the solution a lot of times to the problems that you um you're looking for so um i always find people that are passionate not necessarily about um um uh, they don't have to be passionate about AWS if you're running AWS, but about technology, about uh, emerging trends. Um, and I also quite like people that um, have an interest outside of work as well, because uh, you know that they're going to be the people that are refreshed because they can switch off. They can then um, do something completely different. And I, I really enjoy working with uh, very, very different people and you're sometimes amazed at the uh, solutions they present uh, things that i thought would be near on impossible uh, and you'll get the ah oh, yes but have you tried right. and, and you know damn well that they, they've thought about this and yes there's a solution there that i've missed completely um so yeah i, I think that um having that nice group of people that have an interest in technology and um get on well kind of uh, embed and gel as a team is absolutely fantastic and i i've seen this a lot in uh, the team that i put together uh, for duco in poland uh, they're an amazing bunch of people who had to learn a system from scratch and take over a lot of the uh, knowledge and they really are chalk and cheese if you was to look at them put them together but they're a great team they interact so well with each other and it's also great when you actually see them um talking and discussing uh and i've said to them before um do carry on in polish because it's quicker if they're having to think and try and solve a problem in english and then present it back to me um and you get lots and lots of different solutions but they really really are a great team that come up with um I don't even want to say bespoke, but just in depth, different solutions that I would never have thought about. Yeah, yeah, I, I do think that's now. I'm speaking. I've always worked with infra people, actually, in sysadmins and what have you. I mean, you know, in the good old days when something went wrong, someone had to sit with the sysadmin while they were trying to restore, recover, find out what the dickens was going on. I also, know, I mean, we know that they can be truculent and a little bit arm crossed occasionally in the good old days, but equally, they love a bit of excitement. Yeah, we're <laughs> oh, back to the here? outage. <laughs> what's, what's going on here? You know, and they'll be cranking, and they'll be working on live, and you're going, "Oh my gosh!" You would never let a developer do that. <laughs> no. I, I really do think that when you have those complete disasters, you see the very best in any yeah. team. Yeah. And uh, one thing I, I learned as a uh, uh, a manager of that type of team is that I'm the buffer. I have to stop the rest of the company trying to interrupt them from solving the um, uh, the problem. And I'm the one that has to provide the updates. Um, and I think that's a really, really big and important role of any manager is to provide that buffer so that the team can actually get on and actually do their job and get things up and running again. Um, and then I'm the one that's then sourcing that information to feedback to the business. And I, I, as you said, you know, it depends on the market, but it can be incredibly 
uh, pressured and uh, pressured for lots of different reasons. Uh, the newspaper example is a very, very good one because there are deadlines that you have to hit. You. And I, I can completely understand <laughs> why people are, are getting slightly flustered. But uh, over the years, you, uh, you get used to that and, and you definitely um, uh, understand the way that the business works and the way that they are desperate for that information, those updates. Um, and then obviously, if you can do it right, you can actually allow the team to do that as quickly as possible without being constantly tapped on the shoulder for that update. Yeah, absolutely. So we talked about money management, we talked about stakeholder management, we talked about team management and hiring and what have you. Uh, and, and just the amazing change that's gone under your feet and you've still got to sort of deal with the new challenges as much as the new opportunities. I mean, it's talked a lot about, and obviously you're, 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 you just completed the stint at uh, JUCO, so uh, um, hopefully when we next talk, we'll be talking about your next gig. But um, fintech has really come to the fore. And what I think a lot of people are learning is fintech is new and they're not being held back by their technology. They haven't got the legacy. And we've seen how retail just has struggled to be able to respond to the new pure digital plays. Not because, I guess, it's just digital, they just haven't been again, because they have got a lot of green screen behind them. And yes. you're, the, you're the infra man, you know, I'm thinking, are you the constraint? But now people want frictionless, they want the modernity. Is that the big challenge now for, for, for infra people to, to bring modernity and responsive so that companies are business agile rather than development teams are team agile? It's it's very tough for some of these bigger companies to make those types of changes. So um, a very good example of that is look at some of the new challenger banks that are out there and they're doing incredibly well. If you actually look at some of the applications that you use on your mobile phone, um, they're, they're miles ahead of what are uh, the big banks in the UK. And you almost feel for the big banks somewhat, although not too much for the uh, uh, the bankers out there. But to a limit, to a limit. But no, seriously, if you're the infra man in a in a bank, you mean, or you're the architect, you've got a heck of a challenge. You've got it is, yeah. And these are monolithic systems that you then have to lift that data and place it somewhere else, and then uh, improve upon it. It's very, very tough. Um, I think this is probably why um, Duca has done so well, is it could take some of that pressure away from the banks themselves. Um, could you just so, what Duco does for those who are not familiar with the Yeah, company? of course. Um, so the core product allows you to um, upload files and it will reconcile it, we'll find the differences. So um, somebody explained it when I first started it, as if a uh, company was doing lots of trades, and uh, obviously if you are a large company, you're doing uh, thousands of trades, uh, if not tens of thousands of trades uh, a day. And when you push the button, when that trade takes place, you then have to compare it with how much you've either sold or bought that commodity for and there could be a slight difference and you may have sold uh, a thousand shares at a pound but by the time you've actually pushed the button uh, it may have changed it may be 98p so 
you can upload two files and it will do a comparison and very quickly give you back a result. And the idea behind that is that um, you're trying to uh, find where those anomalies are. So you can actually then um, say that, no, this balance is and this trade was made at this price. So it's a very, very simplistic way of explaining what Duca does. Um, if you're a bank and you've got two different systems, so you've got the trading platform and then you've got the processing platform and you're trying to reconcile those two together, you're usually going to have to do an export and some people were actually running on spreadsheets and trying to actually find differences in spreadsheets, which um, uh, your heart goes out to them because that must be uh, quite mind-numbing uh, to actually go through all of those trades and trying to find some differences. Whereas you can upload them very quickly into the system and it will then give you back um, any of the uh, anomalies. So you're only looking for the anomalies uh, necessarily. Um, but you, you need to do this for lots of different reasons, one of them being um, uh, regulatory um, reasons as well. So banks would install um, quite large systems to process this on site. And we're, we're kind of going back to where um, a lot of these emerging technologies or uh, fintechs can actually help out uh, some of these uh, larger, older institutions, um, by not asking them to make a major change. You can then say, give us your exports, use our system to actually then interrogate the data, um, and we will then give you back the results. And then once you've actually got it configured for you, tomorrow when you upload that, it will almost instantly give you back the information because it knows you. It remembers your configuration. It remembers the type of files that are coming in and what to look for. And that way, um, you're making some of the older, chunkier banks and their technology and their processing methods come very, very quickly up to date. Right. And you can see why fintechs are doing so well, because they're able to um, make the difference for some of these organizations, uh, speed up processes, um, allow um, a smoother transition for audit or um, regulatory change as well. And with any audit, you know, you need to provide proof and it can be very, very difficult at times. Yeah. And so, so FinTech is not just challenger banks trying to eat their lunch. There are FinTechs facilitating the banks to keep their lunch. Yeah, absolutely right. And um, I, I think this is, one of the really really interesting things out there with uh, fintechs themselves um you could almost see them as being a plug-on a plug-in an add-on to yeah. um their banking system that then gives them the ability to come straight up to date with the latest tech and they can make use of it as well so um for them i think it helps immensely uh, because they're not having to strip out a lot of these systems because it is just cost and time and also risk Yes, And I think whenever you make any change, uh, it's usually always down to risk and cost. Yeah. And those two uh, are definitely usually flagging red when you've got these very large systems out there. When I used to, in the good old days when I had a real job, uh, it's my favorite <laughs> phrase, when I had a real job, um, you know, releases, the, que the one question I want to know is, what, at what point can I not go back and I am fully committed? I want to know that point in the plan. <laughs> and I want to yes. And when we're doing the release, tell me when I've reached that point. Uh, and the other thing was never go in if you don't know how to get out. So I guess my last question 
is I know uh, ops people, they like a bit of IT or they like a bit of best practice. That's why I hear that phrase a bit. Um, always struggle with that one. If we look at when you when you go to companies now and you look at their operations and their infrastructure departments, uh, what are the signals for, if in the good old days, tidy cabling was a good signal, what are the signals now that you've got a good shop on your hands? Oh, well, um, the, well, if you've got a very, very happy uh, customer services, customer success team, yeah. then you know that uh, they're being backed by quite a good team. Um, it's what type of problems any business is seeing. And it's having those very, very open and frank conversations uh, about change. Yeah. And if you are seeing uh, lots of very, very, um, repetitive problems and they're not necessarily the big ones quite a lot of time it's the small irritants that stack up that are actually the real problem and you need to unpick that and then you realize the things that need to change in uh, the infrastructure to make that better and that can be all types of things that needn't necessarily be uh, a person a server a, a process uh, it's usually a combination of lots and lots of different things that you can do then to actually improve um, the end result for that end user. And that can even be an internal team as well. Uh, I, I was talking to somebody who had started a company and a month later, they were still waiting for their laptop to arrive. And it was because of the processes that were in place. Yeah. Uh, and they were just not fit for purpose. But you need to have that very, very open and frank conversation about making that change that everybody would appreciate long-term but it can be slightly difficult at the beginning to actually then unpick. And then it's process and procedures that you're unpicking that somebody uh, has written and you need to make sure they're still relevant. Yeah. Uh, if they ever were. <laughs> if they ever were. They Absolutely. Were. Well, uh, to be honest, nobody's ever rung me up and said, Ian, everything's fine. We don't need you. They usually say, and they never <laughs> ever say, um, we need agile. What they usually say is stuff ain't going out the door or it ain't going out the door easily or it goes out the door and it comes straight back because it doesn't work. It's usually the conversations. Yep. And you're damn right. It will be, a, it's not just, you know, 15 boxes. There'll be three people who know everything but spread over God knows how much. People will be in there somehow and someone's yes. that behavior. Paul, it's been a pleasure. And I'm, I mean, you know, you and I have been rolling our eyes about famous projects that we were involved in, usually they, uh, data migration. Every time I hear data migration projects, I roll my eye. That's the purple heart for me. That's the one that's going to stuff up. Um, but things have changed. I mean, Paul, you are going to be available soon, which is grand for, you know, uh, consulting work and proper real-term work as well and proper jobs. How can we get hold of you if they would like to? contact you and talk to you a bit more about their world oh that's uh, a very very uh, nice office so uh, find me on linkedin so paul stafford or uh, if you can't remember all of that or don't know which paul stafford i am um, then go to uh, www.pstafford.com and that takes you to my linkedin page as well and more than happy to have a chat with anybody We'll 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 uh, we'll put the links into your LinkedIn and I don't know if you if you tweet I'm not a big Twitterer but if you're a Twitterer we could stick that in as well. Uh, thank you so much, Paul. Um, you know, infrastructure easily under misunderstood, 
easily overpriced. <laughs> Terribly easy yes. when it goes wrong. Thank you so much. Um, as you say, you can get hold of Paul about your info needs. If you'd like to talk to me about some of the other ideas that we've been talking about today, you can contact me at ian.gewartagilitybynature.com. And if you want to contact me and you get in touch with Paul, I can do that for you as well. In the meantime, the time is just coming up to just after 3.30. It's time for tea and maybe a little chocolate bonbon. Paul, thank you so much. Ian, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'll speak to you very soon. Will do.